Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Money and hands, I'm a long-term buy-side industry consultant, so so long-term, some of you probably know who I am anyway. Um, I've spent the last couple of years working on broadly a an optimal model for digital assets, for the issuance of digital assets and an operating model that would work across digital assets. Um, in the process, we have run up a website, digitalissuance.com. That has the papers that we've recently published that were at the Investment Association a couple of weeks ago. Um, you have cards on your seats which have QR code which you can get access to the papers through. So please download the papers and let us know what you think about them. We've been lucky enough over the last two years to have some sponsors uh, making this possible. Those sponsors primarily um, MG, we've got Megan here today, but also some cell side representation in FIS and digital uh, distributed ledger representation from GFT. We also had the launch of the Investment Association and, of course, today, Future of Finance with this, with this event. I'm not going to say who it was among our sponsors, but one of the sponsors made this statement, that to remain relevant in how we deliver value to our clients, we need to think differently, not just tweak the current model. We need to create a new one. And what this work of the last two years was about was creating and validating and then writing up that model. So what we're looking at today is the result of that. But before going on to that, I just want to put some facts out, out there, some yeah, facts, that I want you to bear in mind in the whole of this discussion. So if we take a big step back from finance and all the noise and all the people and all the intermediaries and all the processes and all the rest of it, and we look at what this is really about, what all of our industry is about, why finance is there, it's really just one thing. It's about re-engineering future flows of value. And that's it. Either you have a current store of value and you want to re-engineer it into future flows, and that's called an investment, or you expect to have future flows and you want to re-engineer it into a current store of value. That's called borrowing. So that's all that it's about. Everything else is in a formal sense just noise. It's just stuff around the edges. It's stuff in the middle that's not really what this is about. And then if you think about who is important, then the people with a store of value who want to re-engineer it into future flows are asset owners or investors. And the people who have an expectation of future flows and want to re-engineer it into current value are capital issuers. Borrowers. So those are the people who matter. That's what matters. It's about engineering flows in future in the way that we want it. And I'll admit that swaps maybe re-engineer future flows into other future flows, but basically it's about that. So <clears throat> this is a screamy shouty man. He's going to interrupt periodically. And First interruption says we're surely we're talking about digital assets. Isn't investment already digital? We've got all these computer systems and stuff. Well, I contend that yeah, we've computerized. We all have representations of assets and transactions. But essentially, what we've done 
is computerize a physical process. It's as if we're still exchanging um, goods for gold. It's, the process is still separating the agreement of a transaction from the settlement of a transaction, the ordering of a transaction from the agreement of a transaction. It's, it's a process that we're modeling, which is an old physical process. And that gives us a lot of issues. So investment isn't already digital, investment is computerized, computer records of an ancient process. So digitization is not a replay, it's not about a sexier way of just doing the same thing that we do now. It's a real opportunity. And it's an opportunity to this generation to achieve something which hasn't been achieved in the past. It's a chance to create a new model of investment, not just tweak the current model, create a new model of investment. And that means fundamental change. And if we're going to have fundamental change, then you can't just hang on to your familiar, comfortable ideas. You have to get rid of those ideas and replace them with a new set. And that always hurts, that's always uncomfortable. So we're going to have a look at what those comfortable ideas are. Very familiar ideas that we're going to have to part company with, we're going to have to give up. So I'm dividing the world into the physical world. I don't mean just literally nuts and bolts, but where we deliver things, where we deliver assets, where we deliver payments, where we move stuff around between parties. And the genuinely physical world. Where, the genuinely physical world where we have physical assets that are definitely not digital, where we have buildings and things and objects, bowls of form. And the digital world, and in the digital world, all that we have is a digital ledger and some tokens moving along, and that's it. So, in the physical world, and these are meant to be statements of the blind and the obvious, trades move assets and cash between buyers and sellers, that's what happens. And <coughs> when we trade, the thing that we're trading, the object we see as an asset, and we, and we move that. So, after the trade, what happens is that the buyer, of the, the buyer of the asset has an asset who usually puts it in a portfolio. It's like buying something and putting it on the shelf. And as a result of that, the, the things we're worried about mostly, so the stuff we worry about with risk, the stuff we worry about with valuation, is about assets and portfolios. We don't want our assets to lose value. We don't want our portfolios to lose value. So risk is the potential loss of value in those things. We have business systems of many and varied and usually complex which control and manipulate that data. So they move, they're the things that move assets around or representation of assets around and they embody the intelligence that we have about our, our business operating models. And when it comes to actually managing and settling trades, then buyers and sellers are involved in that, as are there many, many agents in the, in the current process. So that's kind of obvious. You know, nobody's going to argue that that's where we are at the moment. Digital world, forget it. None of those statements is true, not a single one of them. So we have to be prepared to get rid of some very comfortable ideas, because in the digital world, 
the only thing which is happening is that value is moving as a token flow on the digital ledger and nothing else. What we're trading are not assets. What we're trading are tokens, and those tokens can be traded as, as a whole, as a single token, as a fractional token, as a cluster of tokens. Not assets. <coughs> After the trade, we hold tokens at nodes, not assets in the tokens. And those tokens are, if they are purely digital tokens, they're not about assets, they're about pledges. They're about pledges to future flows. Value and risk in this context apply to those future flows. I keep coming back to future flows because remember that is what the finance industry is for. So this is being true to our real objective. And what we're worried about is are those future flows going to happen? Are those token flows going to happen? That's our risk and our valuation takes that into account. We don't need business systems to manage this in a proper digital world. Tokens can be smart. Tokens can carry intelligence. So tokens can know what they can do and what they can do to themselves. And they can manage themselves. So what does that mean? What can tokens do? It comes from the nature of the digital ledger. The only thing you can do on a digital ledger is move tokens. So it comes by definition, what a smart token can do is move tokens. It can move other tokens or it can move itself. And, that's it. and one thing which that allows smart tokens to do is to manage and settle the trades. So all of those things are true in the digital world, and the things on the left are true in the physical world. And we have to be prepared. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's a very, very good track record in, in history in saying goodbye to familiar ideas, giving us huge advantage. So one very, very familiar set of ideas was the astronomy that was created by Ptolemy in 150 AD. And this was so familiar and so uh, comfortable that it lasted one and a half millennia, so it lasted 1,500 years. And what Ptolemy said was that the Earth is the centre of the universe, and the Sun, among other random objects, rotates around the Earth, orbits around the Earth. Which is kind of fine, except it's not a very good model. And it's not a good model because what models are meant to do <coughs> is to explain and predict the behaviour of the objects within them. And Ptolemy's model says that the planets should be in completely different places from where they are. So it's not a particularly useful model. But it was very popular because it put the Earth in the centre of the universe, and therefore it's very flattering to, to us as Earth viewers. In order to explain why the planets behaved the way they did, rather than why, the way Ptolemy said they should, you had to invent some really weird objects, invisible planets that acted on the other planets that you could see that made them behave the way that they were observed to behave. And this was to preserve Ptolemaic astronomy. So it's a set of patches, really. It's, it's making stuff up that makes the model fit reality rather than moving 
and too many more. But eventually this got out of hand, and in 1543, Copernicus published a different astronomy, a different view of the universe, in which the sun was at the centre of the universe, and the Earth, modestly, along with the other planetary bodies, orbited around the sun. And that allowed us to do a number of really useful things, like get rid of the invisible planets and predict where planets would be accurately. Now, I'm not pretending that Ptolemaic astronomy is the best model there's ever been. We know that it's been superseded by later models. But what it did was to enable us to improve our view of the universe, improve our understanding, and it led to absolutely powerful developments in the science of astronomy. So it led to an explosion of progress. And that's not just true in science, in, in um, astronomy, that's also true in our world, because something fairly similar happened to option trading. Option trading was interesting and fun, and a kind of different kind of thing from just investing in bonds and equities, but it dribbled along for quite a long time as something which was just an interesting side, you know, side show. It wasn't front row central at all. And in 1973, it began skyward. So why did that happen? Well, I'd suggest to you that two things made that happen. One was Fisher Black and Marlon Scholes coming up with what we know is a flawed, but still better model of options than was there before. And then the Chicago Board of Exchange built market infrastructure to allow the trading of standard options on an organised exchange. And the combination of those two things led to that explosion. So the point I'm making is that a better model and better market infrastructure leads to revolutionary and very, very dramatic change. And we should expect, if we have a better model of digital issuance and a better digital operating model, and we build market infrastructure to support that, then we could expect a similar explosion of benefit. So how do we do that? What are the, we're talking scientific papers, we're talking about Copernicus and stuff, so I've said axioms, but these are just rules, really. How should we do this? Well, first of all, all flows of value are token flows on the digital ledger. Can't emphasize that strongly enough. Ownership is an interesting thing in the digital ledger. There is no kind of notion off ledger of contracts that bestow ownership or rights or whatever. If you've got a token at your address or at your node, it's your token. So ownership changes when address or location changes. Everything that can be only digital, not part of the nuts and bolts world, not part of the physical world, should exist in digital form only. So we're not creating something which is a, a, a reflection of the physical world, we're creating something which is a different world. The digital tokens <coughs> are either digital cash, and we'll look at what that means, or they are pledges of future flows. It's again, it's back to future flows. The whole thing is about engineering future flows. And that means that one token doesn't equal an asset or an ownership of an asset. One token equals one pledge of one flow from one issuer to one recipient. That's what this is built out of. 
And that leaves us only with physical assets. The stuff that is off-ledger is the stuff that we tokenize. Everything else is just tokens. It's not tokenized, it's just tokens. So our screaming, shouting man says, well, everyone's talking about tokenization. The tokenization, the key is in the world. Tokenization implies that there is something else out there that is not a token, that is not digital, that is being tokenized. So tokenization is like the last refuge in this. If you can't have a purely digital asset, you have a tokenized asset. So what does that mean in terms of the tokens? What are these things that populate our digital ledger? Well, they come into two, two categories. The things that you can't have as purely digital are referenced to off-ledger assets. Those assets may not be in the company, building and all kinds of things, but they are off-ledger. And then you have digital tokens which exist only on the digital ledger and are native to it. So we then add to that the fact that some of those are cash and some of those are assets and we get to a kind of classic consulting quadrant where we've got four kinds of four kinds of tokens. So <coughs> cash title tokens, pretty obvious. They are title tokens that exist on ledger, pointing at the pool of cash off ledger. They are collateralized, fully collateralized, then they are a very, very stable, stable pool. Digital tokens, what we're familiar with most of them, Litecoin, Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, these things don't have a pool of cash off ledger, even though you, you know, Bitcoin's represented as this gold coin of beer. There aren't pools of those off-ledger that Bitcoin represents. Bitcoin is only on ledger, as is Litecoin, as is Ethereum. And hopefully, they are going to be joined by central bank digital currency, which will be the same. It will be only on-ledger cash. It won't reflect a pool of off-ledger value anywhere. It will be on-ledger real cash. Then, Physical assets, we talked about buildings, Picasso, bananas, whatever, companies. These are things that exist off ledger, and the best we can do is to create a title token on ledger to represent their ownership. Digital assets, back to future flows. So the digital asset is purely to pledge in a future flow, and that's all. It only exists on ledger. So, we talked about tokens being smart, and they're pretty central to this model. So what does a, what does a smart token mean? What does it do? What does it look like? Well, it turns out that smart tokens are very, are very regular, they're very common. So every smart token looks much the same. It's a pledge to a future flow, so you need to know who that's from, that's its issuer. It triggers at a certain point, so that tells you when it's, gonna, when it's going to make its flow happen, or it may be that it triggers on an event or a combination of the two. <coughs> it has to know what it's going to deliver, so what are the tokens that it's going to move around, because that's what smart tokens do, because it's the only thing that's happening on the ledger, and how many of them are there going to be? So it has some terms that tell you how to calculate, or it, how to calculate the number of tokens to be moved. And then because we work in a regulated environment, then there will be constraints and rules that need to be abided in that process. So that's a smart token, and it's called smart because it does three things itself. 
it self-actuates, so it knows when to start and starts itself. It self-executes, so it does the thing it's there to do, it does the delivery of tokens. And it self-constructs, so it runs its own compliance. And this is a pretty powerful construct because it allows us to represent a huge number of financial objects. First of all, instruments. So as long as it's a purely financial instrument made of future cash flows, then you can represent it. So a bond is a string of these things. One for each income event and one for the redemption event. The swaps are strings of uh, smart tokens which match each other. One issuer, one recipient for each and they're inverted. That's all the swap is. So any complexity of instruments, once it's made up in that way, you can represent with smart tokens. But you can also represent things you don't think of as, as instruments, you think of as almost processes like income and corporations. They're pledges as well. As are the other side of the balance sheet, liabilities and securitizations. Every smart token has an asset side and a liability side. If someone issues it, that's their liability, and someone benefits from it, that's their recipient, that's the asset. So things that you don't think of, those instruments can also be represented. And even more surprisingly, things that you don't think of as kind of part of that picture at all can be represented as well. So an order is just a back-to-back -back set of pledges. An indication of interest is a pledge that you haven't made yet. It's a pledge you want to make. So all of these things can be represented in smart token form by clustering smart tokens. So that's how we represent instruments and the trading instruments then becomes just the, self, the smart tokens doing their thing, just acting as they are able to act. So the smart token creates self-execution. So the screamy shouty man says, but surely we've, you know, we've spent the last 30 or 40 years automating trading. You know, why do you think this is a good idea? Why does this make a difference? Well, yes we have, and I've been involved in that process as much as anyone else. And if we go back to the two key parties who really matter in this, the asset owner and the capital issuer, let's call them for simplicity of buyer and seller. In our current market, in our current market infrastructure, if these two innocents want to transact, then there is a blizzard of other objects <coughs> that get involved in that process. Many of the regulated entities that are mandatory in the process. And this is a kind of equity example, but there are plenty of others. And it, even if you try and make that organised, and you try and sort of turn it into a, almost a flow diagram, look at the interactions between them, and then overlay the processes that these parties carry out, this is almost chaos. This is, this is just not anything that you would ever build from scratch deliberately. It all comes from patching, just like, just like, Ptolemaic um, astronomy patching in invisible planets. What we've done is patch in entities and objects and processes and controls in order to make up for the weakness in the model in the first place. And what's really scary is that we don't just have one of these, we have different ones of these for every asset type. 
So we've got ourselves into you know, a very substantial, complex mess where we're constantly trying to catch shortcomings in the model. And we've got multiples of these, and the effect of that is a very heavy weight of regulation. And the reason why that's a heavy weight of regulation is because the regulation, the complexity and scale of it, is multiplied by the number of entities, the number of processes, <coughs> the number of interactions, and they're huge. So that's where we've got to. Why on earth did we get there? I mean, that looks mad. But the people who got us there, and I'm including myself in that, were well-intentioned, trying to do the right thing, not stupid, you know, trying to improve the process. And I'd suggest to you that we got there for three reasons. One, because we've patched the process and we've patched a bad move. So we've just created more and more things like central settlement depositories, central counterparties, clearing houses, things that mitigate the bad effects of the model that we've got, the model that we've created. And they usually mitigate risk or even trust. Second thing we've done, and this is useful, it's all sensible, we've improved intermediary processes and technologies. So, so we have made improvements in technology. And the third thing we've done is absolutely, in our industry and on the buy side, manically reduce resource costs through outsourcing everything that moves and offshoring every resource that we can. So we've done those three, we've done those three things. And these three things are well-intentioned. They are practical things that we've achieved and they've been largely successful. The problem is they run out of steam. This is Mallard, it's a very beautiful object, trends. Um, it is an incremental improvement on what went before. It's an A4 Pacific, it was better than an A3 Pacific because it had a better smoke box, it had better cylinders, I don't know, better something or better boiler. And it showed its superiority by getting the world speed record for steam engines which is great, so it's obviously a high quality piece of kit. The problem is, before it was built, it was obsolete. And that's what's happened. That's what, where we are now with our current model of transactions and assets. It's obsolete. So where's a better alternative model? Well, let's have a look at the entities and objects that we need in this alternative model. This is getting on to what is the digital issuance optimal model. Well, first of all, we have our two key parties. The capital issuer, the asset owner, issuer recipient. And then we need some smart tokens, a smart token. Uh, and then we need the things that the smart token is going to that's it. That's the whole thing that we need. So if we look at, that's the issuance model. If we look at the operating model, so how does that manifest itself in transaction? Then here's that issuer and our recipient again. The issuer does what its name suggests. It issues pledges, it issues mints, smart tokens, which it then edits a pledge onto. And it then transfers that to a recipient who is willing to receive it. They might, be, they might be making their own pledge or transferring some tokens in, in consideration, but that doesn't really matter, so that's just a pledge the other way. 
So the smart token is transferred to the recipient, and then critically, the issuer makes the pledged tokens visible and available on its node. And that is how trust is established. Then the smart token wakes up, its trigger happens, the thing that makes it live, makes it live, and it transfers those tokens to the recipient. So it's done what it's defined to do. And having done its job, it can then be transferred back to the issuer, and the issuer can then do whatever it likes with it. It can burn it, it can stick it on the shelf, it can use it as an indication of interest, it can use it for another pledge to another party. So it can do it right. That's the whole thing. So we have one issuance model, and we have one operating model. And because we can represent all of those asset classes that I showed you, all of those processes that I showed you, all of the things the other side of the balance that I showed you, then that one operating model will work for all of those. So when you have a new asset, you define a new set of tokens, you don't have to build any new technology. It's already there. It works because the underlying operating model works. So that's it. That's the one operating model. Two entities, two objects, five processes. And that means that regulation can go from being a very dark cloud to being a very small white cloud. So what about trading? Uh, trading smart tokens, well, we can trade them, as I said, individually in clusters or in fractions, whatever you want. So if you received a smart token, there is a guaranteed secondary market. You can trade it however you like. Clusters simulate conventional assets, but if you create a bond, it's a cluster of tokens, once you've traded it, the recipient's just got a bunch of tokens, so they can trade those individually, in fractions, whatever they want. So the asset doesn't persist, only the tokens persist. Unissued tokens can be kept visible and searchable on the node of the, of the um, issuer, and then they can be searched by willing recipients. The node, if you, if you don't want to be searched or if you don't want to make yourself public, you can create smart markets or you can create a, a node that matches anonymous pledges so you can, you can act as a kind of sort of central sort of market. And orders follow the same operating model as everything else. You don't need all the management system, you don't need the execution management. The orders follow the same operating model because they're just about to back pledge as well. So they are identical to other tokens. So, screaming, shouting, now says, hang on, this is a new, very radical new, new way of looking at this. This is digital issuance seeking to be optimal and seeking to have a single operating model. But surely it's happening all the time anyway. And it is, but I point out two flaws. I mean, we have lots of projects, lots of people in this room will be involved in them. Which are doing usually title token issuance, but often a bit better than that. And we're doing it for subclasses of assets, often subsets of asset classes. And we are doing it, making it all up for the individual project. So we've got a proliferation of methods, a proliferation of approaches. And this is in the future going to make it very difficult to interoperate, it's going to make interoperation complex and costly. 
and it's going to limit what we can achieve and what benefits we can deliver. The second thing that we're doing wrong is that a lot of digital issuance, we must all of it at the moment, is at the asset level. And as soon as you issue at the asset level, you concretize that asset class, you concretize the asset, its life cycle, and its operating model, and its terms and conditions. And that leads to a benefit immediately. So what do we need to do? What are the rules if we're going to optimize? Rather than the rules for digitization, what are the rules for optimal digital issuance? The first is obvious, issue the tokens at the flow level. This is all about future flows, not at the asset level. Make the tokens smart, because the tokens can then operate themselves and they can give us a very simple operating model. To do that, they have to be self-actuating, self-executing and self-limiting. And we need them to be individually traded. They've got to be liquid. They've got to be something you can trade. And then measure value and risk of the tokens and the flows, not of the assets. So what does this mean for business systems? Well, we've transferred so much onto the token, even though the tokens are themselves pretty simple. Business systems shrink and they become standardized. So we still need business systems to operate the, the, the node that represents the business location. But what they become, well, they're a receptacle for tokens. They're just a node holding tokens, and that's where the token is. Tokens don't issue themselves and edit themselves. They can't do that. So the business system does that, and it sends the tokens to its initial recipient. The, the business has to have visibility and understanding of the tokens it has in issue. So it has to know what it's got inbound and what it's got outbound. So what it's pledged to others and what it's pledged to it. And it has to look at those in terms of risk valuation and critically asset and liability management. So the inbound and the outbound have to be matched up. And you have to know what your asset and liability position is over the time. We've talked about searching for matching pledges issued as indications of interest, and you have to maintain permissions for who can look at the indications on your, on your node. That's about it. So when you're creating your asset class or your product, you don't need to change any of that. So you can issue a new asset class, just create a new asset class out of a new cluster of tokens, and you don't have to change the security master, you don't have to have new maintenance facilities, you don't have to have new transaction processing, any of it. You can just do it immediately. You want a new product, you can do it immediately. So that gives you a flavour of benefits. All the benefits of this model spring from the fact that there's one digital representation that is optimised, or seeks to be optimised, and there is one operating model. Benefits for different parties, where well, the asset owner, the investor, gets much more product choice because it's so much easier to create products. Asset sourcing is simplified because you can get, you can trade whatever you want at whatever level you want. The individual, the fraction, the cluster, the individual token, or the asset representation. So asset sourcing is simplified. And because everything has an asset side and a liability side, you see the whole asset and liability picture in one place. From the asset manager's perspective, then creating new product, creating personalization is straightforward, and moving into new asset types, which we all know if we've been involved in derivatives and new, um, new products and new structures, 
this has been a nightmare and it's taken forever and been expensive and high risk. So from an asset manager's perspective, change becomes cheap. For the issuer and the, uh, the capital issuer, then matching funding requirements. Instead of approximating your, your asset liability match, if you're a pension scheme or an insurance scheme, you can create it precisely without needing to go into kind of complex swap in swap contracts to get rid of the approximations. So you can match your funding needs without needing to go into complex and expensive um, transactions. From a service provider's point of view, which I don't know whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, but from a service provider's point of view, well, there is no income processing. It does it itself. There is no settlement management. There is no order management. There is no security data maintenance because there's no security master. The smart tokens that are out there are the security them and where they are is the security master. There's no registry maintenance, it does it itself. There's no entitlement calculations. So what we depend on in asset servicing pretty well goes away, pretty well evaporates. And for everyone, we get radically simplified regulation because the number of entities, processes and interactions is so low. You get no boundaries between asset classes, so the, the, the straitjacket of dealing with conventional asset classes, which we just all live with and think is normal, it's not normal at all. It's not right. Asset classes shouldn't be fixed. Assets, assets should do whatever you want them to do, and we should have a secure operating model that works for all of them, and that's what's going on for. And IT architecture becomes standardised, so the business, the business systems are all the same. Doesn't matter who you are, you're an issuer, you're a recipient, you're an asset manager, but whoever you are, your, your IT architecture is the same. So, do we want to do this or do we want to stay with what we've got? Well, if we do stay with what we've got, then, well, the blizzard of entities, processes, regulations, controls, we stay with that, we keep that. Our costs stay where they are or go higher because over time, um, it's getting difficult to make further savings. Change is slow and expensive, and as other markets, other jurisdictions get a bit smarter, our competitiveness will decline. The forms of digital issuance and the uh, proliferation of complexity will continue. Do you want to come and take some seats? Um, and that means that it will get more and more hard to interoperate, and more harder and harder to create a universal view of assets across ledgers. We'll be stuck with the current definitions of asset classes and their concretized life cycles and operating models. And overall, we've got a generational opportunity here to do something different, to create a new model which optimizes our deployment of digitization, our deployment of digital measures. And if we don't take that, then our clients may start to do more and more of this themselves. And decentralized finance gives them the platform to do that. So if we don't do this, then people may run out of patience, as I think there is evidence they already are, with organized finance and will go to decentralized. That's a threat, an existential threat to all of us. So that doesn't look very good. We should probably not.
So I'll leave the last word with Arthur C. Clarke, who said that every radical idea provokes three sequential reactions. And the first of those is, you're a clown, you've got to be joking, as a man. The second is, oh, well, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe work, maybe okay, but no business case, it's not worth it, carry on doing what you're doing. And then the third is, is my idea. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I've hoped that this, this afternoon I've persuaded you that trying to optimise issuance and creating a single operating model for digital issuance is at least the start of a really good idea. And now I just look at that.